Hello from Austin. Welcome to episode 183 of the National Security Law Podcast brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. It's Thursday night. It's November 5th, 2020. The election won't stop. I'm Bobby Chesney. I'm Steve Vladek. I am so tired. Um, I was saying before we started recording that, you know, I pride myself on being a, a voracious, if overconfident multitasker. And we've reached the point in the proceedings where I can barely focus on one task at a time. So, well, I, I can't even do that, as uh, <laughs> as you won't be able to tell from listening to our intro. It's not the first time we recorded the intro because I managed to basically speak nonsense in the first sentence, followed by claiming that what it was October 15th. October fifteenth. <laughs> I have no idea where I. Got I mean, that. Bobby, the last two days have felt like about a month. So you I know. Yes, I mean but maybe it is still October fifteenth, and it's just some sort of weird out of body time warp. experience we're having. Um. Hey, happy Guy Fox Day. All right, yeah, gunpowder plot. Which also means it's Ben Wittes' birthday. Happy birthday, Ben. Yeah, he, uh, happy birthday, buddy. Um, uh, remember, remember, the 5th of November, the gunpowder treason and plot. I know of no reason the gunpowder treason should ever be forgot. <laughs> and yet, most people have. Uh, well, I also, um, wait, before, what, speaking of birthdays, just really quickly, I also want to uh, send a very, very special birthday shout out for tomorrow um, for big fan of the podcast, uh, uh, Gray Brooks. Oh, cool. Um, hey, yeah, great. Uh, Gray Erie would not tell me what number birthday it is, um, I think, uh, uh, to avoid potential questions of incrimination. But um, she really wanted to do something special for your birthday. So happy birthday, buddy. Thanks for being a listener. That's awesome. Uh, but let's assume it's at least more than five or six, right? I mean, surely. So. I mean, I, you know, I, I mean, since they're married, I assume it's at least, you know, 19 or 20. <laughs> We're up there. You know, it's 25. Let's say, it's your, hey, happy 21st, 25th, 21st. 25. Yeah, you know, uh, but seriously, uh, uh, we really, I, it's times like these where I really appreciate our audience of listeners. And and so, you know, being able to sort of send a happy birthday wish is a nice little treat. No, it's really great. Um, I, like you, Steve, I listen to lots of podcasts. Um, I get so much warmth and enjoyment from listening to to these people week after week, the, the ones I follow. And I'm incredibly grateful for those of y'all out there who listen to us from time to time. We don't know why you do it, but we're glad that you do. Uh, once again, we've been away for a little while because it's just been a hard semester. Uh, we're juggling a lot on our on our day job front. Uh, we don't have a national security agenda to talk about tonight. Well, I mean, um, other than you know the future of civilization. As well, yeah, yeah, still, yeah, you're stealing my thunder there. But we do have, of course, the election itself to discuss. Election Palooza, and we've got lots of great suggestions that came in over Twitter uh, after you prompted listeners to weigh in with suggestions. So we could just kind of troll our Twitter feed. But if you're looking for a more rigorous rundown of the actual national security news from recent weeks. We'll get back to you next week. I think tonight it's, we're recording kind of late. Um, we're we're, it's late. It's, it's late and it's late and we're loopy. Late and it's late and we're loopy. Okay, I'm writing that down. That is a show title. Episode 184. It's or 183. It's late, comma and we're loopy. It's late and we're loopy. Got it. Okay. Or 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 we could go for my favorite line of the day. Episode 183: colon a non-zero number. Do I, do I, okay, so what is that from? I'm going to miss all these references because I have been totally in the weeds today. No idea what's been happening in the past six or seven hours. So there was a, um, as you know, um, the Trump campaign has filed a number of lawsuits um, to challenge various aspects of the vote counting processes in some of the states that are currently quite close. Um, and there's a case in federal district court in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Um, where the campaign has raised a series of claims mostly about inadequate access to observe the counting of votes in Philadelphia County. Um, and this is before, I believe, Judge Diamond um, on the Eastern District of Pennsylvania. So the I, I want to get this right, but basically the core claim of the administration in this lawsuit is that um, there's uh, uh, inadequate access, that basically there have been no Republican observers allowed into the observation room, that you know they, they can't tell if there's any shenanigans, yada, yada, yada. So that, that's um, factually untrue, right? Well, it, yes, it is factually untrue. Of course, then there's the question of, you know, but the administration keeps saying it is, a, it is, it is true, the campaign, their surrogates, you know, their people. So this is the exchange from the hearing as reported by multiple reporters, uh, Judge Paul Diamond. Um, 
quote, and this is this is his coll- colloquy with the Trump lawyer. Quote: Are your observers in the counting room? Question mark. Trump campaign lawyer. Quote: There's a non-zero number of people in the room. Unquote. <laughs> That's awesome. Wait, it gets better. Next line. Yes. I'm asking you, as a member of the bar of this court, are people representing the Donald J. Trump for president, representing the plaintiffs, in that room? Trump campaign lawyer. Yes. Judge Diamond. I'm sorry. Then what's your problem? <laughs> <laughs> but wait, there's a better line. Uh, so a, a, a couple minutes later, right? The same lawyer is still going. He says, Your Honor, there's one more dimension to this problem, to which Judge Diamond responds, the width? The what? The width? The width? Oh, like not. the dimensions? <laughs> yeah, um, so, so, I mean, like, like, you know, there's a small part of me that, like, there's a non-zero number of people in the room. Like, that's kind of a baller lawyer response, but also, like, that's the perfect epitome of where we are with the just completely unsubstantiate like the the hysterical widespread claims of fraud and cheating and malfeasance that literally have no evidence no let's let's recap um we've got action going down in multiple states oh boy the next stages uh for each one this yeah there's a lot of friction still ahead no matter what calls are made and I wonder if it's useful to break it down in terms Ooh, of good idea. Those, those elections that are within that state's margin that allows for recounts. Yep. Um, are any of them likely to? So I think we know from historical practice that recount. Oh, sorry, if, if you're hearing if you're hearing some snorting noises, it's because Roxy is climbing on me. And, and Roxy's the pug. Roxy is the pug. So I get to see this because I can see you on Zoom. The listeners yes. obviously can't, but I, show me Roxy. I don't see Roxy. Uh, she just she just climbed around and passed me. So hold on a second. Let me right. well, stand by. There, there you go. Oh, that's a cute you live shot of wish, Roxy. I wish y'all could see what I'm seeing. That is a yep. sleepy dog wondering. That is a sleepy fire. dog wondering what what the hell is going on. All right. So um, first, let's just note so we can set it aside the, the recount issue. Um, most states will have, if not all states, have a procedure where if the if the election is within a certain number of votes, you're legally entitled to ask for a recount. But my understanding is this never results in a shift in more than, say, a few hundred uh, votes. And it could go, yeah, so, way, of course. So, so, so can, I, can I say sort of, to, can, can we do this a bit progressively? Because I, I, yeah, I, yeah. I want to do exactly what you're proposing. I want to peel, I want peel to do the layers on the onion here. So we're, we're really down. North Carolina, I think, is basically going to just sort of not end up that crazy close. It's just, it's just in this limbo state like Alaska because they don't really finish counting until next week. And so we've got these two states where we don't know enough because they just haven't gotten close because there's still too many ballots coming in. So that's North Carolina and Alaska. Let's put them in the probably not going to be a big that's deal. Next category. Week's issue. That's right. So what we're really talking about is we're talking about four states. We're talking about um, Nevada, Arizona, Georgia, and Pennsylvania. Right. And just to do some electoral math for a second, um, if you assume that North Carolina and Alaska go to President Trump, which mm-hmm. I, I think are fair assumptions yep. at this point, um, Biden wins if any of a couple of scenarios play out. Biden wins simply by winning Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. Biden wins by, and, and Biden wins by winning a combination of any two of the other three without right. Pennsylvania. Right. So you can make um, those any which way. They'll get, they'll get him over 17 more votes. He needs 17 more Electoral College votes. Yep. Pennsylvania's 20. Um, Georgia 16. Of the other three that he has yep. a shot at will do it. So he has multiple pathways, um, whereas Trump really right. doesn't. Okay. And then, and then as we were recording this at, you know, whatever, uh, on the 49th hour of, of Tuesday, November 3rd, right? As we're recording this on, on, on Thursday at, at 11.20 Eastern time, um, the margins are such that, tr- that Biden looks almost certain to win Nevada barring some real last minute shift. Um, Biden looks pretty darn certain to win Pennsylvania, even though at the moment the tally has Trump still marginally ahead. Um, the the widespread view, Bobby, is that Biden's going to pull ahead in that count by the middle of tonight um, and that it's actually not even going to be that close. Um, and this is because the remaining uncounted ballots are coming from urban areas that clearly are going to be balanced, more skewed in his favor 
Right. Based uh, but, on based on projections of how many ballots are outstanding in Pennsylvania and where they're from and where they're from. So Biden would need them to break about 63 to 35, 36. And they've been and coming over 70 percent, 75, 76, 77. So so chances are by the time Pennsylvania is done, Biden's going to have won by at least high four digits. Yeah, even low five. He's about 27,000 back. Seems yeah. the, unless there's a sudden mathematically unlikely shift in the skew right. of, of these ballots. He's going to get. And, and, and the reason for that, and just to be clear, because there's all this insanely indefensible parent, you know, a uh, uh, conspiratorial stuff out there. The reason why this has happened, this, this so-called blue shift is what every single expert predicted because Pennsylvania's legislature barred pre-canvassing. It barred Pennsylvania state officials from counting mail-in and early votes, which we've seen, Bobby, are dramatically skewed toward Biden supporters, right? Right, Um, because the president discouraged his supporters from using advanced methods and quite the opposite otherwise. Uh, and there's oh, wait, and when, but, you so, do the, when you do yeah. the mail-in, there's all this logistical stuff that has That's to right. the papers got to be processed yep. in a different way. But also, they couldn't start opening mail-in ballots until the polls closed in Pennsylvania on Tuesday, which right. is why this is taking forever. Right. Okay, that, which, is, so, which is stupid. Of course. Well, listen. I mean, there's another conversation to have about the the psychological torture we've unnecessarily put ourselves through for the last few days, plus right. the actual like the the extent to which Trump and his cronies have been able to claim that something mischievous is going on. I mean, it lacks any factual predicate, but it's only possible at all because of the preposterous way that we do election results in this country. That's Am I right that that has to be solved on a case state-by-state basis? That no. there's, there's, Is there a way that Congress could make yes. a solution? Yes. So, so you know, the the elections clause of Article One, Section Four, generally delegates to states the power to set the the manner, the time, place, and manner of elections. But it says Congress can, uh, you know, but Congress may regulate. Like it's it reserves the power to Congress to actually impose uniform rules, Bobby, for everything except quote the places of choosing yeah. senators. Right. Um. So so Congress, Bobby, could it just ha- for for political reasons, it hasn't. Um, but I think we're seeing any time by law make or alter such regulations, except as to the places of choosing senators. And the accept language there is a pretty powerful, you know, expressio unius argument about, you know, there. So, so for example, Bobby, here's what Congress could do to spare us from something. And then I have to get to Georgia because we haven't talked about Georgia yet. So, um, Congress could say, right, there's a uniform national early voting period. Congress could say, you know, states may start pre-canvassing as of like, you know, 7 a.m. Monday morning, the day before the election. Congress could say states are not allowed to release preliminary results. Like Congress could prevent this, you know, this mirage of wild shifts in votes when it's not a shift, Bobby. It's just the way we're counting. No, I agree. Like, the, the, the idea, the idea, the framing that what is going on is voting. Everybody's voting. There's yeah. no voting. All the voting yeah. happened. Yeah. The counting takes forever, especially if you don't start with millions of ballots until right. after. The, ba- the battle the is over. We're, the battle is over. We're just still figuring out how many casualties yeah. there were. All right. So moving along to just recapping okay. where so, we are. Okay. So Pennsylvania. So 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 um, Nevada looks pretty likely to end up in Biden's camp and by a pretty sufficient margin. Pennsylvania does as well. Um, Georgia and Arizona and and, and uh, Pennsylvania, by the way, would be enough to put Biden over the top. It's entirely possible that by tomorrow morning, major news networks will have called the entire election for Biden because they will have called Pennsylvania. So question, though, back to the recount and we'll get to the litigation separately, but recount yeah. request. Are any of these states likely to be close enough to where there is a chance that the recount could right. produce a different? So, outcome? so, so, so this is where I was going. So this is where I was going. I don't think. Nevada and Pennsylvania are going to end up within mandatory recount windows um, because I think we're going to be looking at numbers that are in the five digits in both states. Yeah. Um, and I, I don't, I, I, you know, it might be the pen. I don't remember Pennsylvania is a half a percent or one percent, but like the here's why the recount thing I think is a bit of a red herring. Um, there's a really good report. By a, there's a think tank report that I'll, I'll link to on my Twitter feed um, about recounts. Um, and the most votes that have ever shifted Bobby in a recount is like 1,300. 
Yeah. Right. So, okay. so when you had, so, so take Wisconsin for a second, right? Wisconsin, the unofficial results in Wisconsin were like 20,697 votes separating Biden and Trump. That's within 1%, which is the Wisconsin recount standard. Um, but a recount's not going to change the tally by 20,000 votes. And so right. the real right. question is like, do any of these states end up in like the 2000 votes range? And I think the answer is it won't be Nevada. It won't be Pennsylvania. It could be Georgia, right? Georgia, and it could be Arizona. Yep. But Bobby, at that point, it won't matter. Like, I mean, this is like this is the point. Like, because if Pennsylvania is Pennsylvania, not, then it doesn't matter. Then so, it doesn't matter. So the million dollar question here is: Could Pennsylvania end up actually close enough to where a recount might make a difference? And if the answer to that is no, right. then the question becomes: All right, shifting to all these different lawsuits that have been filed. Do any of them have real legs that could result in the throwing out of ballots at the five-digit level? Right. And the short answer is um, the only one that has any specter of that um, has a poison pill that will make that irrelevant. And so let me let me sort of explain that for a second. There's a case already in the U.S. Supreme Court, or at least with a cert petition pending, brought by the Pennsylvania Republican Party challenging the Pennsylvania Supreme Court's uh, uh, decision to extend the deadline, Bobby, for the receipt of mail-in or absentee ballots until tomorrow, Friday, right, for three days past right. election day. Postmarked by the election day, but they could be received later thanks to the slow post office. In, well, so that's another story. Okay. Um, the, the, the President Trump has made a big deal about how they're going to the Supreme Court. Um, it is critical for everyone to understand that the only issue in the Supreme Court in that case is the legitimacy of the extension of the receipt period. And here's why that doesn't matter. Um, when the case was already there last week and there was a motion to expedite, the Pennsylvania Secretary of State, Kathy Bokovar, um, did something really, I think, Bobby prescient, which is she voluntarily instructed all of her registrars to segregate the ballots. Right. Um, you and mean, to, do, you mean, do you mean distinguishing those that could be problematic if the extension turns out to be invalid so that you could identify how many of those are and which ones those are? And count them separately. And what, and, do, we, what do we know about that count? So uh, in, in many counties, it hasn't started yet, right? Like the count that we're getting on the news right now, Bobby, is is just the stuff that came in on time, right? And so, so um, and the totals we're hearing from counties about how many fall into the latter category are actually pretty modest, like a couple hundred here, a couple, because word got out, right? So, so this could all be dismissed and it might, might not be numerically enough to close the gap, even if every one of them was a Biden vote. Even if every single one was a wait, Biden wait. vote. If if the count that we're hearing about in the media is without reference to these yep. potentially vulnerable late ballots, which yep. let's be clear, the, the rationale, as I understand it, would be that the, the majority of the Supreme Court might say that's a state official modifying state legislation and in violation the, of the in violation of article uh, of that provision of Article One, which gives right. that power only to the state legislature. Right. So, sort of the Bush v. Gore type idea. Um, so, if those well, I, mean, I, I just 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 for the record, I think it's actually going beyond even the three justice concurrence in Bush versus Gore, but that's a separate matter. Okay. So, but if these are, but if if it all breaks in Trump's favor, it wouldn't make a difference if these aren't part of the current lead Biden already has. Indeed. Exactly. If, if Biden's got a lead without these, then presumably Trump needs these to count and hope that he somehow could rely on these late arriving votes to rescue himself. Otherwise, it's a completely moot issue. Listen, I mean, this is the stupidest part about the whole Trump messaging over the last three days, which is that he wants to stop the count. Right, while well, he's behind. <laughs> when it, well, so there are three problems. First, there's the hypocrisy of wanting to stop the count in places where he's up. Right. But keep counting places where he's keep behind. In Arizona, right. Right, right. Second, he's actually had said stop the count about places where he's behind, right? And just uh, anyway, no, so okay. so so to answer your question directly, Bobby, right? I could see a universe where recount litigation, depending upon the final totals in Georgia and Arizona, right, was actually on the horizon and potentially significant. I just don't think by the time we're there. George, anyone's going to care about Georgia and Arizona because I think the electoral college is going to be locked up when everyone calls Pennsylvania and Nevada for is Biden. There any other Pennsylvania litigation besides this particular issue that we just discussed, which does sound like right. it 
almost impossible for it to make a difference. So there are a bunch of cases, Bobby, but they're all process cases. They're all challenges to. I want to stand six feet. I want to stand six inches. I want to sit in the lap of ballot counters to watch what they're doing. Whatever right. none, of, none of that none of them are direct challenges to ballots. Now, mind you, Pennsylvania law does create a procedure once the once the Secretary of State issues her initial tabulation, right, for the campaign to file objections. But I just gotta say, there is no, I mean, despite what you might see on social media, they have been unable to produce one iota of evidence, at least in Pennsylvania. Um, right, that there's anything that would possibly get them within a, you know, a, I don't know, just a light year. Now, Nevada might be slightly different. They they wrote in a, the campaign sent a letter today to Attorney General Barr, um, who is hiding somewhere, um, which is an interesting story into itself that I want to spend well, a minute. Which on. I appreciate. Yeah. I, so there's a, there's a question I want to put to you in a minute that involves him. But, um, and the campaign purported to identify what it calls 3,000 cases of people voting in Nevada who aren't residents of Nevada. Um, I will just say that I take such assertions when not made under penalty of perjury with more than a grain of salt from this campaign, um, right? But like even that, Bobby, I mean, even if let's assume that they actually have a smoking gun there, which by the way, we haven't seen any proof of. All right, so that would lead to the exclusion of 3,000 votes from Nevada, which I don't think is going to be like even within four digits by the time we're done. So I, I just – I don't see where – based on where things are at 1130 on Thursday night, I don't see how any litigation um, could potentially disrupt the results that we seem sort of trending toward – inevitably trending toward. It seems um, like the, yeah. the, the prospect for a – non-court-dictated outcome here depends a lot on Pennsylvania ultimately not being very close once they complete this uh, initial wave of counting. So I would say, I I would modify that just a little bit to say either Pennsylvania not being close, right, when the initial results are tabulated, or Arizona and Nevada not being close, because Biden just needs either of those combinations. Right. right. Um, but it sounds like there'll be more friction on this issue with Nevada and that's right. Um, maybe in Arizona it may just be so close that who knows what could what could happen. Yeah, I don't. I think Arizona is going to be really. I think Arizona is going to end up being in the closest state. Um, I actually think Biden's going to end up winning Georgia by more than whatever the margin is going to be in Arizona. Um, there's the wild card, Bobby, which we should talk about for a second, and then I want to get to Barr and his people. So the wild card um, is the nuclear bomb. Right, and the nuclear bomb is the state legislature. Um, uh, I call it the state legislature coup option, but that's a little bit pejorative. Oh, you mean a um, post-election change in the rules by the state legislature? A, a post-election declaration that the election failed, and so a, a, a post-election appointment of a separate slate of electors by the state legislature. So this, let's talk about pencil. This is a Pennsylvania state law matter. How does this work? So. Every state, Bobby, right? Every state's legislature has the power to 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 provide for the appointment of a slate of electors. But under federal law, right? So under state law, you have to do that in advance of the election. The whole point is the election is how the states have chosen, right, to appoint their slate of electors. Under the under part of the Electoral Count Act of eighteen eighty seven, the statute Congress passed in response to the disputed election of eighteen seventy six. If you guys want to look, brother, this is all fraud behaves. Uh, indeed, um, you can find all this in what three USC? I guess that's what section nineteen. Oh, no, that's that's succession act. Sorry, three USC sections five and seven um, are where you will find the relevant the relevant stuff here. Um, so there is a and three USC two is the coup provision. So under 3 U.S.C. Section 2, I want to quote it to you. Um, It's literally 3 U.S.C. 2. Whenever any state has held an election for the purpose of choosing electors, okay, and has failed to make a choice on the day prescribed by law, the electors may be appointed on a subsequent day in such a manner as the legislature of such state may direct. Um, This is the coup provision, where basically if a state election just utterly fails, the state legislature is the emergency backstop, right? The legislature, as the representative of the state, is the sort of fallback to appoint a slate of electors if the people have been unable to do so. Here's the problem, right? Who decides if the election, quote, failed, unquote, right? So so if Pennsylvania has an election and it goes fine and it's just, you know, the president and the right-wing media sphere that declares it a failure, 
Is that enough? So the, what has been terrifying a lot of folks, Bobby, for the better part of two or three months now is that this was the Trump administration's break the glass strategy. And that was so far fetched and hard to square with with what is what I'm looking at. I'm looking at the statute has failed to make a choice on the day prescribed by law. So we're supposed to think that that despite the fact that there there has been an election, there are currently counting votes, there will be an answer at the end of this. All the precincts will certify their results. Um, Are we imagining that the secretary of state of Pennsylvania will just bald-faced refuse to certify the collection of all the precinct results? No, 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 no. The, the, the secretary said, so, so here's the complication, right? You've got a, this is, this is especially a, 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 the, the nightmare scenario is this Bobby democratic governor and therefore democratic secretary of state, Republican legislature and a state that votes for Biden. And that's Pennsylvania, right? Or at least that looks like where we're going to be. And so the concern is that, no, Bokovar would be perfectly happy to certify that um, right. Biden wins Pennsylvania. That's but the leg- positive. You're suggesting that maybe the, that the, the legislature of the state might pass a statute over the veto because they can't act without uh, – they'd have to get it over the veto of the governor, right? I don't know. If you buy the three justice concurrence in Bush versus Gore and the Justice Kavanaugh view in the Wisconsin case from last Monday, if the legislature is conclusive, shouldn't the legislature be conclusive even without regard to the governor's veto? Not for a post-election passage of a non-statute. It's not legislation. Ah, welcome, well, welcome, my friend, to the to the. So, okay. Um, so before I mean, you say I, I this, think is, what you're saying I see how someone could try to construct this argument, but this sounds but Bobby, far-fetched. Good. Okay, let's talk about all the people who have endorsed it today. Because um, I know you've been, I know you've been offline. Um, the chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee, Lindsey Graham, has gone on Fox News saying Republicans should be talking about this option. Um, the That's Mark crazy. Levin show. The Mark Levin. Mark Levin has been tweeting all day about this option. Right. I mean, there are, you know, seen, there are. Uh, I, I wouldn't say highly regarded because I don't highly regard these people. There are widely followed members of the Republican political and media establishment who are saying this is what we should be doing right now. Now, one piece of good news, which is one Republican who is publicly on record as opposing this coup um, is the Republican majority leader of the Pennsylvania Senate. Um, and that yeah. is probably, therefore, the end of the story. Yeah, but this, I'm not, I completely agree that like, if people in the media sphere are floating this harebrained scheme, Fine, but then, not, wait, then, not just people in the media sphere. Lindsey Graham. I'll take your word on that. That the Lindsey Graham is is continuing to carry water for Donald Trump. Sounds like, um, but this theory is ridiculous. And the idea that the right way to read three U.S. Code two is that something, an act of a state legislature in the face of a certified election result after an election has occurred, that without being able to pass something as law, because they couldn't hear. I don't think. I don't think they have super majorities, right? So that they could pass some sort of concurrent resolution, I guess, through a uh, Republican-controlled state legislature, declaring, purporting to declare that the election's a failure based on presumably, you know, unsubstantiated allegations of fraud, and that that could trigger three U.S. Code too. I'm not buying it. So I think that would actually, you know, of course, that would go into court, be litigated. But that, but 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 that, but so I we we got here through that right like we're talking about court and so so the nightmare scenario to me is right. Let's assume that let's assume that you didn't have quite as cool heads in the Pennsylvania legislature. The nightmare scenario is that the Pennsylvania legislature tries to do this right. They're sued, and then now you've got the U.S. Supreme Court deciding whether the state legislature has the authority to do this in a context in which at least three of the justices in the last 10 days have signed on to opinions that endorse a remarkably uh, preclusive reading of the Constitution insofar as it gives power to state legislatures over elections. I I still don't think that that position, which certainly I think we can agree that the core of that position is about existing ex-ante legislation defining how an election is supposed to work. That, that and or and, and Bobby and or scenarios where a true crisis actually does destroy, like you know, and or if there really is no, like if the election literally failed, like if there was a 
you know, catastrophe. Yeah. On the day of the election. Yeah. Right. And no mechanism to have like, you know, there are scenarios where I think you and I would agree that actually it would be appropriate for a state legislature to appoint a slate of electors under this provision. I'll just say that I do not believe that a majority of the Supreme Court would sustain such a harebrained scheme to just flat out just assert that the election was fraudulent. And especially in the circumstance with no, with no evidence, no evidence um, to just try to override it. I don't believe that a majority of the court would go for this. I don't think the chief, I, 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 mean, I don't think Kavanaugh would go for it. I don't, I bet you Amy County Barrett wouldn't go for it. I hope so. Others, so I, I, I bet none of them would go for this. I hope, I hope that's right. I think that's right. I don't want to find out if that's right. Uh, um, yeah, there, you and I agree. I don't want and, to see any right. of this. And, 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 I mean, let me say this it'll be eternally shameful for every member of the legislature that tries to uh, undo the election in that, oh, that overtly ridiculous way. And, and and just to just to sort of put you know sort of tie this together, um, there was a Trump campaign advisor on the Lou Dobbs show this afternoon, who said and who said <laughs> I, I know I but this is that. <laughs> but this is a quote. We're waiting for the United States Supreme Court, of which the president has nominated three justices, to step in and do something. That's and how hopefully, people think. Wait, wait, hopefully, and hopefully Amy Coney Barrett will come through. So listen, I, I'm with you. You know I'm with you. My point is just to think that she's not going to do it because she doesn't want to be seen as a, a ridiculous, cartoonish. Poem. You, asked, you asked if there was any litigation yeah. that could get us to the Supreme Court that could potentially throw the whole election into chaos, and and the this is the hail mary insane coup plan. And I'm not objecting to you telling me about yeah. it. To be clear, yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm just objecting to the preposterousness of it. I, listen, I, I mean. Not just the preposterousness of it, the offensive, like, you know, we're just casually talking about a state legislature literally disenfranchising its people. Well, so like, far, literally. it doesn't sound like we have any actual members of the state legislature talking about doing this. I wouldn't yet. say none, but 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 yes, I think it is. It is very useful in this case that the that the chairman of the that the that the sorry, majority leader of the Pennsylvania Senate is is a rational human being. Um can we so on the election front? So, so Bobby, all this is to say, here's where I think this is heading, and, and maybe this is a good segue, right? Where I think this is heading is Biden wins Pennsylvania, Nevada, and Georgia. Arizona may end up being really, really close, right? And so Biden ends up either with 295 or 306 electoral votes, and 306 is an interesting number because that's what Trump got, right, in 2016. Hmm. Um, then what? And and this is and this is this is to me now the really interesting question um, because the speech I saw this afternoon the the speech I saw the president give this afternoon which emboldened his base and horrified I think what's left of the you know sort of old school Republican establishment the James Baker you know uh, George W Bush types right. Um, that speech suggests he is not going to go quietly into the night. And my question to you is, is that why Bill Barr is missing? Like, is is Barr, is this Barr's way, uh, is, you know, for all of my problems with Barr, is Barr sitting back so that, like, he can be the one who has the come to Jesus conversation with the president? I, so I don't know what he said. In this speech day, were there any particular highlights, specific things he said he was going to do? I, I'm sure it was full of fraud claims and all. The, I'm sure it was just like his tweets. Cheating, stealing, about- you know, illegal voting. Um, you know, we're winning this state. We won that state. I mean, just, you know, I, it was so bad that like. I'm looking at it now that yeah. we're talking. I, I found some transcript of it. I mean, Bobby, even the New York Post. <laughs> the, the New York Post, the Hunter Biden New York Post, right, ran a story called Downcast Trump Makes Baseless Election Fraud Claims in White House Address. Like even the Murdochs, <laughs> yeah. even, wow, the even the Murdochs yeah. have exited stage far right. At two New York Post. Exactly. Um, so, but, but this uh, is my question. So clearly there are a there, there's a large chunk of the president's base and of his enabler cohort on Capitol Hill who are who are lashing themselves to the mast. And my question is, who is it in the Republican Party who talks them down? Like who is the who oh, is I don't the think, I don't think anyone talks him down. I don't think anyone I think I think that all this will continue nonstop 
even as institutional step after institutional step locks in his defeat and sets us on the path to the inauguration. And when that time comes, he's going to denounce it all the whole way. He'll never stop denouncing it. He'll never stop delegitimizing it. And his enablers in the media and elsewhere will continue to salute that. And it will be a, you know, none of this goes away the day that Biden becomes president. It it shifts its locus, fortunately, from having its hands on the, its hands on the levers of power towards being this presence that begins immediately to turn its attention towards the 2022 midterms, towards the competition where there is already clearly going to be an unbelievable battle uh, on the part of the more traditionalist Republicans to try to reclaim the party. And then this talk of Trump, you know, actually coming back in 2024 is ridiculous, but who's going to try to be his heir? Will it, you know, will it be Tom Cotton? Will it be, you know, well, so, so that, will be somebody else. I mean, there was a remarkable moment today when, after the president's address, the um, Brad Parscale and Donald Trump Jr. both called out the entire Republican Party and said, if you want to run in 2024, you better say something in the next couple hours. Um like you know, show it. You're either with us or you're against us, and the time to and the time to to draw to draw sides is now. Well, and I, you know, in that respect, I agree. If you want to run 2024, I want I do want you coming out and saying right that this is ridiculous, and we need to let all the votes be counted. And we yeah. need to let the process be followed. And Good. if you instead are trying to encourage state legislatures to usurp the result of the people's vote, um, I think that should be remembered. In 2022, 2024, I mean, I, and beyond. I, mean, I, I agree with that. So let me just read you my favorite tweet of the day, um, which is from Nikki Haley. Um, and Bobby was shockingly sent like 15 minutes after the Donald Trump Jr. and Brad Parscale tweets. I'm sure they had no connection to each other. So here's Nikki Haley's tweet. And I want to read this to you. I, I want you to tell me exactly what she's saying. Quote, we all owe real Donald Trump for his leadership of conservative victories for Senate, House, and state legislatures. He and the American people deserve transparency and fairness as the votes are counted. The law must be followed. We have to keep the faith that the truth will prevail. Well, that's the tweet. It's pretty obvious what she's doing, right? Yeah, Nikki Haley has very carefully tried to stay within the orbit of Donald Trump in a way that will position her to try to claim the uh, the constituency support if and when she runs in 2024, and at the same time never get too close to the sun, trying to avoid getting uh, into a position where she can't distance herself from whatever she needs to distance herself from. This to me looks like a, a pretty clear attempt to try to associate herself with the president at this moment so that she'll be able to, to claim those bona fides when trying to pull his base into her column. But but I guess I'm asking, does that count as the kind of denunciation you were looking for? Uh this isn't a denunciation. It's obviously not a denunciation. Right. So so I guess what I'm trying to say is what they've succeeded in doing, of, of all the folks I can think of as 2024 frontrunners, they succeeded in getting some of them to double down, Nikki Haley to be equivocal, and everybody else to stay silent, which, you know, is its own symptom of a broader disease. Um, okay. Um, so, so I guess probably what I'm saying is I see this all going where by some time, probably tomorrow, um, all of the media networks have called the entire election for Biden and where there's some litigation, but none of it's really going to go very far. Right. And so um, the, the really interesting thing is, as we move into the the final hundred, I, I don't know how many days are actually left. in 76. 76. So the, the final 75. But who's counting? The final 75 days. Uh, here's some predictions. Uh, pardons coming down like rain over the final <laughs> week. Make it rain. He, it's, he's going to be... He's gonna be Dishing out, that's the sound of the, the pardons heading out. There'll be a lot of pardons towards the end, but w- what else do you, do you think is there to be watched for? He'll he'll do as many appointments as he can do. He'll he'll do whatever you know regulatory actions he can do. Uh, but I actually think that at a certain point, once it's become clear that the litigation's not, you know, the Supreme Court's not going to save him, which it's not, um, that recounts aren't going to undo this, that he has in fact lost an incredibly close election, but he has lost it. Um, I imagine he's going to start turning him turning his attentions more towards um, the various personal personal survival. 
Well, I think he's going to turn his attention towards the media enterprises and other money-making enterprises that are that are meant to follow from this for him. And then the pardon stuff will be doled out with abandon. I mean, presidents often dole out pardons with reckless abandon towards the end, but this will be something like we've never seen before. Million dollar question. Do you, do you think he'll just go ahead while he's got the chance and try issuing a pardon to himself, just a preemptive sort of accompanied by this, yeah, the Democrats are going to try to come get me. I have no choice but to do this. I hereby pardon myself. He obviously can pardon everyone else, not from state, I mean, but from federal offenses. Uh, but, but do you think he'll try to pardon himself just to see if that works? Maybe, but I mean, there's another scenario here, which is that he, that his people quietly reach out to Biden and propose a deal. Like a Ford type deal? Like, listen, I, but what do they have to bargain with? Like, I'm not going to- A, con- a concession. I'll, I'll, I'll concede the election and go peacefully and cooperatively if you will either pardon me yourself or- just or, or at least agree up. agree not to prosecute me and my family. They'd need it to bind more than just Biden, right? Um, it so might be Obama enough. Obama would have to be in on that too, or it wouldn't okay. be. You know, given, but, given but, their concerns but, about whether he's going to last his whole term. I mean, I mean just, but I guess what I'm saying is like, imagine, ima- the details aside, like what would you think about such a such a, you know, proposal? Um. No, so I don't like at all the idea that it's his to bargain with, conceding that he's lost if he's lost. That's not how this works. And by that's, that, that's not how any of this works. But no, that hasn't exactly, stopped him no. for the last well, three and a half years. You ask what I think, and what I oh, think sorry. is it's, sure. it's baloney to suggest for if he were to suggest it'd be baloney for him to suggest that. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna try to burn this down and resist the transition of power to actually try to resist it. And I frankly don't think he could, I think that'd be a bluff. I don't think he can, yes, can he bring uh, extremists out into the streets perhaps if he demands it? Maybe, but I, I, I tell you this, I don't believe he can get the US military, the FBI, the Secret Service, the US Marshals, or any other uh, coercive power wielding element of the US government to uh, follow him in, a, in an effort to resist the peaceful transition of power. I don't believe he could succeed in that at all. So I think that any attempt by him to try to bargain this, probably I don't think he's got something to bargain with. Now, could, could he say like, look, I'll, I won't keep insisting through my Twitter feed, et cetera, that it's all a sham, that this is a coup, et cetera. First of all, how could you ever believe him? How could you ever trust him in that? Yes, there is that. Um, there is that. Uh, okay, so. Uh, so 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 okay, but I got, so 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 then this so so this leads me to my my last question, and then I wanted to talk. There's one thing I wanted. There's another story I wanted to say about. I wanted to bring up about Barr. Um, so where is he? I would. So I I don't buy into a theory that he's like holding his fire for maximum credibility because if he's trying to maximize his credibility then he should be out there vocally endorsing the president's line. Notably, you're not seeing a lot of his own cabinet. I'm not sure we're seeing any of his cabinet doing that. Pompeo's been quiet. Um, uh, uh, Barr's been quiet. Um, Esper, other than than leaking that he's resigning. Yeah, Esper's on the verge of being fired anyway. So, uh, right, no. Chad, Chad Wolf has been quiet. Right. These people all see where this is going. The analysis you and I engaged in earlier is not some insider analysis. That's just just knowing how the rules work. It's it's foreseeable at this point that Trump is is fair and square going to lose a very close election. They understand this. They're not going to go down with the ship that far by by it appears by enjoining joining the president in these preposterous claims that the voting should just stop, etc. And it speaks volumes when they've been with him through so much else, but they won't be with him for this. It's a real sign that, you know, this thing's going to be over and he's going to be left standing alone, except for his family and his, uh, his outside the cabinet supporters. I mean, he'll have, he'll always have Rich Grinnell. Um, Can I be, oh my God, did did you see my, my Rich Grinnell, not Rick Grinnell and went, went back and forth on Twitter the other day? No, that's pretty funny. I did see an, an NBC reporter uh, hounding him hilariously, demanding, like, what's your evidence? Because I guess Grinnell gave some press statement. where in he Nevada. Thought, 
They've not allowed they've not allowed any monitors in there. And the guy from NBC like goes in and he says, "Hey, you guys, are you election monitors?" Like, yeah. They're like Democrats and Republicans. And the lady says, "Yes." He's like, "Okay, so there you go." I mean, this is where, like Bobby. They're just making shit up. Um, but can I can I can I be a pedant for a second and push back on one thing you said? Yeah, please. You called it a very close election. Um, and this is the next thing I wanted to raise. I think when we're done, this is not going to look like a very close election. Like, yes, I understand it Are feels like it right now. Na- national total popular vote argument or just no, that you no, think all no, the states I'm are going to come in? I'm not doing the crazy like, you know, all that matters is the popular vote. I, I accept the Electoral College as part of our constitutional system. I, I, I get it. Do so you think no. gonna, Biden's going to get all these states and it won't end up being close? Yes. I, so here's what I think. I think we're looking at Biden with 295 or 306 electoral votes, which, you know, in the 20th century is actually not a squeaker. Um, and I think that with the potential exceptions of Arizona and Georgia, and maybe even only one of them, um, no state's going to be within four figures. Like the the margin in every state is going to be at least 10 and if not like 20, 30,000 votes. It would be and, nice. I hope that turns out that way. If it turns out that all these things are outside that sort of margin of error is the wrong word, but that margin of of recountability where who knows what might happen because there's always, if you take millions of votes, you're going to find some things that you're need to be. You're going to find like a 0.01% error, right. right, right. Um, but but so so here's, so then, so this is the thing I want to, I want to raise. Um, let's assume just for the sake of this discussion that when all is said and done, Biden's at 306, he wins the national popular vote by 6 million votes and he wins, and, and of the states he wins, all but one of them, he wins by at least 10,000 votes. Um, if that was the first thing we learned, right, if we stopped voting on Tuesday and then everyone took a vacation and we came back the following Tuesday for, de- for, for decision day, right, for, the, de- for, for the, the British version where they literally have – they go to each constituency and they have the ceremony where they announce the results. And the results are the results. Like we counted all the votes. Imagine what the narrative is if the first thing we learn is that Biden won Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan, you know, Arizona, Nevada, Georgia, right? Um, that he didn't lose a single state that Hillary won, right? Like that he, you know, um, outpaced Trump by six million votes now. I mean, like, just imagine how different that narrative is for the same election. Yeah, it would be great. I would love what I think of as the Academy Award model, where yeah. everybody tunes in. Okay, time for the big reveal, and they open the envelope. This and- is the British version. This yeah. is how the Brits. The Brits literally have so British law. There's a, a long name for the 1983 statute that governs this. I don't remember what it is because I'm exhausted. But um, the British, the way they do it is they put the candidates literally on stage in like a random rec hall in their constituency. And when the results are in, you know, a local official just reads the results live while they're all literally standing there. And all I'm saying is Awkward. like, I'm not, listen, I don't need the reality show. Don't put Biden and Trump on stage together while you're reading the results. But imagine if, you know, here's what I, here's what I'm, here's what I would propose if I were in charge of the world, right? States have to take at least three days. And then starting at noon on Friday, a state that is ready may but is not required to, right, release their full results. Um, and they have any time from noon on Friday to noon two weeks from Friday, right? And states just release all the results in one fell swoop after they've, they've finished counting. Um, that would avoid the blue shift, the red mirage. That would avoid the ability of Trump and his enablers and sycophants to claim that something nefarious is going on because the votes are shifting, no, they're not. They already fucking happened, right? Well, like, there, we don't need to do it this way. I would love nothing more than something other than than this. Yeah. Should we do a quick tour through the? There are a lot of interesting questions that were thrown at us in over Twitter after you. Can, can I do one more actual legal thing in national security law land before we get to that? Yeah. So, so, so election related actual legal issue that, that I think may have elided a lot of people's notice. Um, so Katie Benner, the fantastic Katie Benner had this remarkable scoop in the New York times yesterday about a directive that was distributed by, or it was, it was sorry, it was last night. God, these days are so crazy. The, the story broke last night. It was about a directive that was distributed yesterday from 
um, what's his name? Donahue, the 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 the, the principal associate, the principal, assi- the principal assistant to the deputy attorney general, like the the PADAG at DOJ. You know what I'm talking about? Okay. Um, right. He this sent a direct sending. Oh, about putting yes. armed, yes, allowing people to bear arms. Uh, law enforcement officers to bear arms when they go to monitor armed armed federal officers right. in state local and state polling places right. and which, counting centers which is forbidden by statute which is expressly forbidden by statute and so i just want so i i just want to say like this this didn't actually happen right to my understanding bobby no none one's of the done it. yeah no one's actually done it but i want to take a second to explain why this is insane right so um there are a pair of statutes codified today at 18 USC sections 592 and 593 that date back to 1865 and that exist for the sole purpose of keeping federal troops out of polling places and out of elections, right? Um, they have, Bobby, somewhat ignoble origins, right? This was like, like posse comitatus. Exactly like posse comitatus. This was um, de- border Democrats during the Civil War. And then when it was amended in 1909, right, Southern Democrats um, keeping the Republicans from using the military to protect blacks, right? I mean, there's just the, the, the there's just the the if you actually read the historical materials, it's insane how like overt it is. But it's hardened into this neutral and I think really important principle that the federal government does not use force to interfere in state elections. And DOJ's response, apparently, according to Katie's article in the New York Times, which I encourage people to read, is DOJ interpreted the language, quote, at any place where a general or special election is held, unquote, in 592, to literally mean polling places on the day of elections. Right. But not the processing of the votes afterwards at the processing centers. By the way, that was not an Office of Legal Counsel opinion, was it? It was not an LLC interpretation. It was just a, a memo. A political appointee official wrote this and sent it to the U.S. Attorney. DOJ policy, which is a very different thing than the Office of Legal Counsel issuing a considered legal analysis of the issue. But, but I just want to say, just l- lest anyone think that we could spend meaningful time talking about whether any place where a general special election is held includes the counting centers, because it clearly does. And if you actually look at the historical purpose, it was clearly meant to include counting the votes. Um, There's a separate statute that DOJ didn't even talk about, um, which was not enacted in the Civil War. It was enacted in in 1968, Bobby, when there was some other strife. Um, And this is 18 USC 245B1A, which um, makes it a crime, right, for anyone, federal officer or otherwise. Um, and I want to read this to, so I get this exactly right, because, you know, specificity matters. Um, so here's what the statute says. It's a crime. Ah, I scrolled past it too far. It is a crime for whoever, blah, 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 by force or threat of force, willfully injures, intimidates, or interferes with, or attempts to injure, intimidate, or interfere with any person voting, qualifying to vote, campaigning as a candidate, qualifying or acting as a poll watcher, Bobby, or any legally authorized election official in any primary, special, or general election. So what O'Donohue, I don't know if it's O'Donohue or Donohue, I, I, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm butchering, butchering everything tonight. His memo, as described in the New York Times article, is encouraging federal officers to violate not one, but two federal criminal statutes. Fortunately, we're not seeing any actual deployment of federal officers at any location so far as I've heard so far. But this is but but this and is and we're getting close to the time where it's too late for that anyway. No, no, no. I, I think I think we we're past the we're past the the sort of I think the critical moment for that. If that was going to happen, Bobby, it was going to happen this morning. But I mean, I, I'm sorry, like. When we look back at the offensive things DOJ greenlit during this administration, I think this is going to end up on the list because this is so problematic on so many levels. All right. Anyway, rant over. Sorry. A lot of cleanup to do. Here's here's yes. what I think. It's getting late. We're getting late. You want to skip? You want you want to skip the viewer the viewer I think commentary? We got lots of lots of great questions, but I I don't think we can do justice really to any of them. And you haven't seen the darn Mandalorian. Season two, episode one yet, or chapter nine, I think. I, I've been a little busy. That Your priorities are all screwed up. And let's face it, 
you could have watched Mandalorian instead of watching Trump, and you would have been better off for it. I been, well, so so you know what's really messed up though. So so I am I am now past the window that I had to actually like catch up on all my work because I have this crazy succession of briefs that are coming due, um, and I was waiting for the first. Um, the, all, all I have four briefs to write in the next month, and they're all in response to another brief. And so the nice thing was that none of those briefs had come in yet, right? The first one's in. Yeah, it came in last night. It's already here. Um, and here's the best part. The filing deadline, Bobby, it, it had to be filed yesterday. You know when I got the email? What? 11.59 and Ouch. 49 seconds <laughs> Eastern time last night. Ouch. Ouch. Talk about – oops, series on me. Talk about cutting it close, right? That's, that's hilarious. You are uh, You're in trouble, my friend. Let's. Uh, why, why am I? Oh, I'm in trouble because I'm going to be working my my tail yeah, off for the next. Yeah, yeah that's true. Sabbatical is this year on. It's. A, I mean, I suck at this. Yeah. Um, oh, right, oh we will, quick, we, uh, congrats to uh, you and your fellow casebook authors for nabbing oh, wonderful Emily Berman to join yes. you guys on the casebook. Very impressive. This is, uh, Emily Berman from the University of Houston, um, which I hear is still in Texas, um, is is coming on board for the. Uh, <laughs> The, the starting this year with the annual supplements to our national security and counterterrorism books, but also um, will be a permanent author as of the eighth and fifth editions. So we are super excited to have her. Um, I'm especially excited to dump all the work on her when she's not written note looking. <laughs> Hopefully I, I, Emily's I, not listening to this. Way, I, I was looking at our, those questions on Twitter and I came across something that I thought was a joke at first, but did, did Steve Bannon call for beheading? Federal? Yes. <laughs> yes. I, I'm afraid to ask. What? What exactly? What? 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 I don't. Uh, it's like it's like the David Diggs Thomas Jefferson when he learns that Hamilton had did the thing with Mariah Mariah Reynolds. Yeah. What? Yeah. Um. So so not only did Steve Bannon get literally suspended from Twitter, not like these little you know messages on his tweets, but like literally kicked off a of Twitter for that tweet. Um. But he also committed a felony. Because he's like already on what is he on probation? He's got to be um, on on uh, pretrial uh, or pretrial pretrial. Di- he he's on he's in some again. I'm exhausted. He's in some status where you can't so much with the crimes while you're in that status. <laughs> Jeez. All right. Well, I mean, can, can I just say something that I've been waiting to say for, for almost four years? Hmm. It's almost over. Well, there is that too. Our our long national nightmare is almost over. Um. They're just not good at this. Like, it's stunning to me how successful they've been because not only are they terrible people, they're just not especially, like, I don't know, um, <laughs> clever. <laughs> you know, ben, I think, was it Ben who said, uh, or maybe Ben just popularized that someone else had said that uh, we've got malevolence uh, tempered yeah. by incompetence? Ben and Quinta. And, and, and thank goodness. Thank goodness for yes. that incompetence. Right. Imagine if it was malevolence, malevolence, you know, and and competence. Competently executed. No, we yes. we don't need that. All right. Speaking of speaking of incompetence. Yeah, I'm reaching that point. Um, exhaustion tempered by incompetence. Let's hope that let's resume next week. Get back on yes. our weekly schedule. And we, we have once we again can... failed in our pledge to have weekly episodes. It's it's been hard, but hopefully we will not have uh, election stuff to talk about in Indeed. any dramatic way, but instead. Just remarking what everybody already knows, and then moving on to our staple of national security yeah. law developments of the past week. Well, plus, not to plus, mention the Mandalorian. I, so I, I vow, I, you know, um, uh, uh, th- this is the way. I, I will, I will watch, I will watch the the first episode by next by next week. Um, I think it might, you know, by this time next week that we might have a conversation to be having about what a Biden national security transition looks like. Uh, very possibly, well, it'll be. It'll be an important task for, you know, for our program in the months ahead to guess wildly about things that will change and, <laughs> and things that went, I'll, I'll say this about that. Cause someone asked me about it earlier, one of my students. And I said, you know, truth is uh, there were certain things that changed dramatically with Trump, but there were, there were also points of continuity, including things that were points of continuity where Trump tried to make it sound like he was changing it, but he was just doing what, what Obama had already been doing before, like in particular, our operations against the Islamic State. Um, And so there will be maybe not as radical a shift on some aspects of things like counterterrorism, for example, I think will not change too much. I don't actually think, notwithstanding what the president claims, 
that Biden's going to um, be in any way soft on China. Um, one thing's for sure, though, we're going to be tougher on Russia. What are you talking about? No, no president's ever been as tough on Russia as Trump. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's interesting. I mean, I, can I just say one last thing? And this is a bit of a, uh, shockingly, this is a bit of an editorial comment. So a lot of folks, Bobby, in, that are more in my, I think, political orbit than in yours are simultaneously, <laughs> excuse me, um, are simultaneously relieved at what increasingly appears to be the result of the presidential, but deeply, like, you know, distressed and, and distraught over the Senate. Um which, just to be clear, looks like it's going to end up coming down to the double runoff. Yeah, in Georgia, no, like all the political madness is going to right. sit with the poor people. Of 20, 2020 is so terrible, it's going into 2021. Um, but but so I, I just want to say that that um, I think there's no question that a Republican majority Senate is going to dramatically curtail how much Biden can accomplish from his sort of big reform substantive policy agenda. Um, it's certainly going to affect the courts. There's an interesting question to me about how a um, you know a, a Biden administration with a republic with a sharply divided Republican Senate, where you know Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski and Mitt Romney actually have a lot of power because it's like a 51-49 Senate. Um, national security policy in that climate looks very interesting to me. Because you're not probably going to get a lot of legislation through the Senate because of the filibuster. Um, but you also might have a lot of room to do a lot of stuff pretty quietly through executive orders. And so, you know, it's going to be – there's a lot of interesting, I think, sort of play in the joints for us to explore. If, if, if it's clear by this time next week that we're heading for a distinct possibility of a Biden administration, a Democratic House, and a 51-49 Senate, assuming that – the Republican, assuming a split, right, yeah. of the of the Georgia runoffs. On that, I'll say that I think that obviously the, the divided government scenario will uh, be a tremendous difficulty for the Biden administration on domestic policy matters, on foreign affairs and national security stuff. I see that as an area where there'll be lots of cooperation. I see loads of affinity between um, the people I expect to be involved in national security and foreign policy for the Biden administration and uh, Republican leadership in the Senate, I don't, I don't see too many issues where this is going to be. That would be one of the areas where they can get stuff done. Well, and the, and the very last thing I want to say is, and I want, I want to explore this more next week if, if time permits. And I think it actually, in some ways, creates a fascinating strategic opportunity for Biden because Biden's instincts, I think, are far more moderate than a lot of the folks he's that are around him and a lot of the folks who voted for him. Um, and in a world with a Democratic Senate, I think there would have been a ton of pressure on him to pick a pretty lefty cabinet. Um, he can't get a lefty cabinet through a Republican Senate. And so Biden now has cover, right, for picking folks for state, for defense, right, for DNI, right, um, who are pretty centrist. Um, Which I... I, I will at least agree that certainly I think that's what Biden would want to do. And I think that there's little doubt that, you know, the Secretary of Defense will probably be Michelle Flournoy. Um, there'll be all. Do you, th- do, you th- th- do you think a Republican Senate confirms her? Oh, sure. Yeah. 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 So, totally. so the, these are the kinds of things I want to talk about next week because I, I actually think it creates some interesting opportunities for Biden to sort of not go to war with his flank. Um, right. Like, you know, for him to sort of not pick up for him to avoid unnecessary confrontation with his with the left, because he'll have to you know pick folks who are confirmable by a Republican. Senate. You, know, you just highlighted a theme. And I want to close at least my contribution with this. Um, the story for at least. You know, so we got this two year period that this will be the alignment if this is how it's going to go, as we think it will. Um, the it's not going to be. The Democrats versus the Republicans. It's going to be the traditional internationalists with Biden and Senate Republican leadership more or less being aligned in these ways on one side. So a bi- sort of a bipartisan internationalist coalition and then more of a um, a non-internationalist progressives and libertarian non-internationalist and populists crossing the aisle as well with a lot of that in the House and, and a little bit of it in the Senate and uh, a lot of it in Biden's constituency. And so I think that it's going to be foreign policy, and national security will be an area 
where party divide will not be as determinative of, of what the alignments are and where the frictions are. And that's actually been a little bit true under under Trump as well. because Which, stu- which stunningly might get us back to some of the nuances that we used to actually fight about. I'm actually really looking forward to it. I can't wait. I can't wait till we're done trying to get people to agree that, you know, just baseline rule of law concepts and, and decency and values is is actually, you know, front and center. And, and I just think selfishly, like purely selfishly, I think this is why the Democrats apparently not retaking the Senate, I think, hasn't hit me as nearly as sort of heavy a counterweight to Trump losing as it has so many of my friends and colleagues, right? Because, you know... In my, like, this is a privileged, entitled thing to say, and I get that. But it's just like the thing I miss most from our professional universe is nuance in the national security space. And we get that with Biden winning no matter what happens in the Senate. You know, I realize there, there are hundreds of other problems caused by the Democrats not retaking the Senate, and I'm not oblivious to those. But for purposes of our podcast and the content we focus on here, like, I feel like we can, you know, we're, we're on the verge of being able to exhale. Uh, we're close. You know, it, it is interesting. I, I I had predicted Biden was going to win Texas, but Cornyn would keep his seat. Cornyn did keep his seat. Biden did, you know, better than Democrats normally do in Texas, but didn't actually, you know, it wasn't nearly as close in the end as, as people thought it might. I don't know. You know, the the, the, the last couple, so, so, te- so I, I, we're, we're, we got to go to bed. The last one's a, Bobby, to, further to the story about waiting until all the results are in, the numbers in Texas have actually tightened. Like, Biden's not going to win Texas. But when the votes are actually right. all completely fully like counted, better than better than most. But, but I, not I just thought that, he, I thought better than we thought on Tuesday. They're not going to tighten that much. So, anyways, the, the reason I mentioned that is, um, I think there are a lot of people out there that wanted this split result. There are a lot of people that were supporting Biden who were against Trump. They weren't in it. They weren't in it to quote Han Solo. They weren't in it for the revolution. Uh, they were in it to get Trump out. Um, but but probably are are not unhappy to see what could be a closely divided kind of split government thing. We'll see. Um, it'll be great when we get back to talking about other issues. Yep. Um, all right. What was our episode title? Uh, I've got it's late and we're loopy, which has proven to be quite true on both counts. Yeah. Um, all right, you, you don't want to do the uh, uh, um, a non-zero number. Oh, um, let's. What, what, what do you prefer, late and loopy or non-zero number? I think Laban we could probably talk. We could probably talk about this after I stop recording. Probably. So he is at Bobby Chesney. I have SF underscore Vladik. We are at NSL Podcast. I'm going to bed. Good night, everybody. Stay safe out there. Adios.